studying First Peter on Sunday mornings. If you're with us this morning while we're turning there and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then if you don't own a Bible, just feel free to take that one home, make it yours, and then bring it with you next Sunday and, and uh, continue on with it. So best to hear the Word of God and see it with your own eyes. Uh, never sit in church and believe anything that's being said. Unless you can look down at a Bible on your lap and test the speaker. You say, Damien, I trust you. You trust me too much then. Uh, you don't want to do that. You want to test everything by right out of the book. And so important to have a Bible uh, in, in church. Uh, there's lots of good reasons for it, but that's uh, one of the reasons. So First Peter chapter 2, two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12. And Peter writes and he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak, evil, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you, your Bible tells us that you are, as we study your word under the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you're making us into living epistles. And that's what we want our lives to be. And we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that is needed for us to understand these two verses, why they're in the Bible, what they accomplish in our life, Lord, and then to make the truths that are found here to give them a permanent place in each one of our lives and bring perspective to our lives as well as we study your word this morning. And we ask it of you, Father, in that glorious name, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This letter of First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians uh, living at, at his time uh, who were in the midst of great suffering. And he wrote this letter in order to, number one, encourage them, number two, to help them maintain and in some cases regain perspective in the middle of that suffering, and then also to give them just practical wisdom, practical instruction on how to conduct themselves in the middle of the great trial that they found themselves in. And, of course, uh, this passage uh, speaks to us. It's a timeless for Christians in all ages that find themselves in such a place. In our passage this morning, Peter now instructs us regarding how to handle the following situation that is described in verse 12 in this way. When they, that is the world, the unbelieving world, speak against you as evildoers. In other words, Peter now addresses how we are to conduct ourselves when we are being unjustly slandered simply because we are Christians. Now, on this issue of slander, in verse 12, suffering uh, can take many, many forms for a Christian in this very, very fallen world. Sometimes our suffering is physical. We're not immune to that simply because we're Christians. 
Sometimes our suffering is emotional. That's real. There's real heartbreak in this world. Uh, Even though we know and we love the Lord, it's a fallen place and our hearts are sometimes broken in this world. There's a suffering that is mental. Sometimes this world, it's so broken and it's so fallen that it can break our minds. It can take a mind that is very, very fragile. And all of our minds are fragile. You just got to get hit from the right angle by kind of the wrong thing. And you find out that we're more fragile mentally than we realize. And sometimes the suffering can be verbal, as it is in our text here this morning. To be the object of unjust slander, that's a very, very miserable experience uh, in the Christian life. And it's also a very painful uh, experience, especially since, as Christians, we realize that uh, our reputation is so important to us because we realize that our reputation is tied up in God's reputation. Our reputation in this world reflects upon the God that we love. So our our reputation means more to us than almost anything in life. And to be slandered and attacked in that way is an attack upon our reputation, an attack upon what we consider to be highly valuable uh, in life. I don't think that the, a greater uh, lie has been put to rhyme than the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You just introduce me to whoever believes that to be true, and I can find a handful of people who will say things that will uh, break your, you as much as sticks and stones uh, can break you. Now, the slander that was being spread concerning uh, the Christians that Peter wrote to, they included the accusation by the Roman emperor at the time, Caesar Nero, that the Christians were guilty of uh, setting Rome on fire, the city of Rome, in an attempt to burn it down. And, of course, we know, and historically everybody knows, that nothing could have been further from the truth. And yet that was the accusation that was made against these Christians and then the persecution that followed as a result. I think that probably the most painful thing about slander certainly had to be true of them. I know it's true of us. But maybe the most painful thing and most disheartening thing of all is that that accusation was so Uh, readily and so widely believed by so many. So often when we're slandered by someone, we understand the circumstances. We understand why they're bitter. We understand what they don't understand about the situation that has so upset them. We understand that it could be because of their carnality or their sensitivity or whatever it might be. And so often we can look at the individual who initiates the slander and we say, I understand that person on some level. They're dead wrong, but I understand them on some level. What really hurts is how many people then will eagerly believe the slander to be true about us. And that becomes the most painful part of any kind of campaign of slander that is waged against us. Jesus warned all of us as Christians that becoming the objects of slander 
would be our portion in this world simply because we are his followers. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you notice there in verse 12 that this is not a matter of if. He doesn't say if this occurs, but when this occurs. Now, in most of our relationships in life with those who are not yet Christians, those who uh, don't uh, fully share our biblically based morality or our biblically based definitions of right and wrong and of good and bad, at some time or other in that relationship, we will have to say to them, I can't go there. I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't be a part of that as a Christian without disobeying my Lord. And it may have to do with uh, going to a certain kind of movie or watching certain television shows or certainly includes drinking and partying. It includes lying or compromising in a business deal and and so forth. And uh, or when we're uh, and then sometimes we're forced even to the place where we need to confront wrongdoing in somebody's life that is not yet a Christian and not only say concerning what they're wanting to draw us into, not only say, no, we cannot be a part of that, but then where we take the extra step and we tell them that that really shouldn't be a part of their life as as well. And in some cases, not all cases, but some, it will lead to a campaign of slander against us, whether at work or at school or among friends, or oftentimes even within a family. And in some cases, we will even be spoken of as evildoers. Now imagine that, being slandered as an evildoer for doing uh, the right thing. People will determine that by being moral and righteous, we are the problem rather than those who are truly evildoers, that the one who refuses to get drunk or refuses to drink is the oddball, rather than the one who regularly drinks himself into oblivion, that the one who refuses to deceive a customer by failing to tell them the whole story about the product or uh, failure to disclose critical information. Now, that employee is a liability in the company rather the one, than the one who closes the deal through deceit. Or the one who refuses to cheat on the test is now the bad guy instead of all of the people who actually cheat. But how in the world does this kind of thing happen? How do things get backwards like this? It happens when the world decides to reject God's definitions of right and wrong and replace them with their own definitions of right and wrong. 
And the problem with that is it always inevitably leads to good being defined as evil and evil being defined as good. Because there's only one reason you would desire to change God's definitions of right and wrong, and that's because somehow those definitions are getting in the way of your doing evil. And so this whole good being called evil and evil being called good thing is only going to get worse and worse as the Bible teaches as Jesus' return draws near. And it's not just a New Testament or a this time in history phenomenon. It's as old as man. Uh, in the Old Testament, 750 years before Jesus was born, God spoke to his people, the Jews, in the Old Covenant through the prophet Isaiah. And he declared in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They change all the definitions of right and wrong and switch them completely backwards within the culture. Now, our nation, in our nation, you just look at the zeal with which all of the public displays of the Ten Commandments have been systematically removed from public display, and most specifically in our courthouses. Why? Because many people don't like the strictness of that morality, those definitions of right and wrong, and they want to replace them with a morality that they're a little more comfortable with, a morality that is more accommodating toward evil. And you cannot do that kind of thing. You cannot become more accommodating to evil without then emboldening evil within the culture. And so we see it going on all around us. Look at the way every attempt is being made in our society to eliminate any exposure to Christianity uh, or to the Bible in the public sector. It began decades ago in our public schools and, uh, uh, and now far beyond that uh, in its reach. And so why is this attempt made to uh, eliminate individuals' chance exposure to Christianity and the Bible in the public setting? Because it's necessary to do so in order to introduce a new standard of right and wrong. They don't want the competition of God's word. But it doesn't stop with marginalizing the Ten Commandments and the Bible. That's just the beginning. Because once they're successful there, they'll then move on to marginalize and slander Christians as a whole. And then they will turn to slandering and marginalizing individual Christians as well. And that's the campaign of slander that you are in the middle of right now. And just as with Rome's attack upon the first century Christians, it is a broad-based, systematic, government-endorsed and supported attack upon Christianity that is happening. Enormous power and resources being waged and, and mounted in that war. The influence and the morality of Christians and Christianity must be attacked and brought to a halt while every other immorality in our culture is given special protection. Well, those Christians that Peter wrote to in the first century had to think to themselves, 
as we all do when unjust slander is spread against us. I think, as I said before, how could people believe these lies about us? They've watched our lives. How in the world could they believe that we could be responsible for the burning of Rome? And yet people believed it. Was that just an outlandish lie against them? And yet people believed it. And the accusation stuck. So this is the place that they find themselves in. And the place that they find themselves in is this. Now what do we do? How do we deal with this slander, this accusation that has stuck related to us and as a result is a reflection also upon our God? And this is the question that Peter proceeds to answer. You notice in verses 11 and 12, sometimes we just can feel like we're powerless to combat uh, the slander of others, but we aren't powerless. It's a very, very powerful way to combat slander. And Peter tells us that the single best means by which to silence slander directed against us is to live a godly life. And you notice that uh, in verse 12, first of all, he says we combat it by living an honorable life among the Gentiles. The Gentiles refers to the godless world. It refers to the unsaved population of the world. And Peter is saying that we're to live a life before the unsaved world that is so honorable that it just effectively silences any slander and criticism of us. The fact of the matter is we cannot control what people say about us. You cannot control what people say about you. Nobody can control that. But what we can control is whether it is based in truth or not. And we are never to give the world a valid reason for slandering us. There shouldn't be anything in our conduct that will give the unsaved world or the ungodly ammunition to attack the reputation of Christ, to attack Christianity as a whole, or to attack our own lives in particular. I had the joy and I had the blessing of meeting my biological father one time, just once in my lifetime. I wish it had been more, but it was just once. He left my mother when she was pregnant with myself and my twin brother before we were born, and the circumstances of all of that were not entirely uh, his fault at all. He moved from Las Vegas to Mexico City, where he lived the rest of his life. And at some point in our mid-twenties, my brother Gabe and I, in our mid-twenties with our wives, uh, it was arranged, I forget the circumstances of all of it, it was arranged that we would finally meet him face to face. And so we decided to meet kind of halfway, and, he, and so we met in San Diego. He came up from Mexico City. Uh, with uh, a sister that I had never met before and her husband. And, uh, and he came with his wife, and we came down to San Diego uh, with our respective wives. And we spent uh, a day with him and uh, uh, his wife, and complete with lunch, uh, tuna fish in uh, olive oil and vinegar with onions, as I remember, very light lunch. And, um, and my brother and I were both 
relatively new Christians at that point in time. And of course, our greatest concern was that our father, we had one chance to meet him, is that we would be able to share uh, the gospel with him and this great uh, truth of salvation in Christ that had changed our lives. And we had written to him and uh, in, in such a way that our faith in Christ, he knew about that. And, and so he kind of anticipated that the conversation might go there uh, uh, ultimately. And so uh, as we met him and got a chance to talk and when it was kind of appropriate, we broached the subject of Christianity and salvation with him that day. And he dismissed any willingness to take Christianity seriously and he just brushed them aside and he said, listen, he said, I get drunk with the priests. I get drunk with the priests. Now, was he a man looking for an excuse not to believe? I don't deny the possibility. But in the words of Peter, no one claiming to represent Christ should have supplied him with that excuse. And what's true of any number of those priests, I don't say it's true of all priests in the world, just those priests. What's true of them is also true in each and every one of our lives. We must never supply that excuse to anyone by our lives, whether it's an unsaved husband or wife or a fellow student or business partner or whatever. The Bible teaches that as Christians, we are a living advertisement for Christianity and for Christ. And so our life either commends him to others or it makes them think less of him. And if we live a life of hypocrisy then and compromising God's word, then we invite the unsaved world to dismiss our words. I think with the famous saying, who you are speaks so loudly I can't hear what you're saying. The problem with hypocrisy and compromise in a Christian's life, and a Christian isn't taking seriously the fact that the power of their life and their identification with Christ, if we do that, is that so often it just takes one Christian to live that kind of life, to just live carnal and disobedient in some work environment or in the home, or at the school, or in the neighborhood, or on the sports team, or whatever it is. And that person so sullies the name of Christ, uh, so uh, muddies uh, Christianity, and so affects the reputation of all other Christians, that sometimes it will take God bringing 5, 10, 20 Christians who are the real deal, that really take this seriously across the path of that person that it's been exposed to the hypocrisy in order to undo the damage of just one hypocrite. The importance, the significance of, of this kind of thing. Well, how does one live an honorable life? And Peter tells us, by abstaining, verse 11, from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I think the Greek words are helpful. The word abstain means to hold off. 
It's a word that was used of keeping a ship offshore, not allowing it to come into the harbor and to dock. The word fleshly refers to what is sensual or of the body, and lust refers to strong desire. So he's telling us as Christians that we are not to harbor or dock or unite our lives to any strong desire that is not consistent with God's will for our lives, as that will is revealed in the word of God. Sometimes when we hear the word lust, we just think of it in our culture almost exclusively in the sense of sexual lust. That's almost always how it's used. But how it's used in the Bible and how it was used in the ancient world, it just meant, simply meant a strong desire for uh, something. And so the application here is a lot broader than that. Paul listed some of these strong lusts that we are not to uh, dock ourselves or unite ourselves to in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 19 through 21, where he lists the works of the flesh. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, that's sex outside of marriage, uncleanness, talking about sexual uncleanness, um, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, that's parting, and the like. So as we read what the Bible has to say here, obviously engaging in any of these sins, not just sexual sins, any of these sins will harm our Christian witness, and it will give legitimacy to the unbelieving world to reject Christ and to reject Christianity and even to slander it. And so we're to resist the pull of these desires, and the pull is very real, and because these desires are at war against our soul, that is God's plan and his purpose for our lives. Now, the result will be a holy, blameless life a life against which no accusation can stick. The slander can be slandered. The accusation can be made. Uh, but we become Teflon, essentially, in the sense that it cannot stick to that kind of life. There's an old saying, I think every Christian should hear it in their Christian life and uh, learn it and, and so the Holy Spirit can bring it to our remembrances as necessary. And it goes something like this. If you take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation. Always. Always he will do that. If we give legitimate attention to our character, God will always take care of our reputation. There isn't a need to run all over the place trying to refute every bit of slander that's being spoken concerning us. And I think that's one of the ways... If, if we're that kind of person that we just absolutely can't live with uh, untruths being said about us and we hear just the slightest little snippet of it and it sends us in a frenzy and a series of phone calls and face-to-face -face and, all, and the whole deal, if the devil can figure us out to be one of those people, then he will keep us busy trying to put out fires of slander in our lives for the rest of our lives. But it's to be entrusted to the Lord. You trust it to the Lord. Keep moving forward. It's all part of the deal. They lied about Jesus. They're going to lie about you. But God promises 
Psalm 37, verses 5 and 6, concerning bringing forth our righteousness and our innocence related to the accusation and the slander. He said, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him also, and he will bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth your righteousness, the fact that you're innocent of this slander. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In other words, God will make the righteousness of your character so clear to everyone by the time he's done with it that it will be as clear as the sun is in the sky on a cloudless summer day at noon. Now, that's clear. God promises to do that. Now, the problem with that is he doesn't promise to do it in five minutes. And he doesn't promise to do it in a day or a week or a month. And sometimes he may not even do it in our lifetimes. He may do it long after we've gone to heaven, if he should tarry. He just promises to do it. And this timing on these issues is absolutely perfect. And we also remember again that his reputation is bound up in our reputation. He will take care of our reputation. The second means by which to silence slander, uh, not only through a good life, a godly life, but he tells us the second means in verse 12 is through good works. It's simply living a life of good works, doing good. Doing good out of being good, because we're a good person in Christ. Now we're going to do good. So all slander should be refuted by just this unbroken series of good deeds that are coming out of our life. You say, well, give me some examples of good works. I'll let you put your own list together, but I think Jesus helped us start the list. He certainly primes the pump. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever in any situation we would want someone to do for us, let us do that for someone else, and then we will have a life that is filled with good works. And you notice that that kind of a life of good works, that life can't be silenced. He says that when they observe your good works, that kind of life is going to be observed. People can refuse to hear our words. I'm sharing Christ with someone and someone and they tell me, listen, I don't want to hear another word about that. I honor that. They'll silence me. I mean, unless the Lord says, no, go ahead and he's going to punch you, but continue to say it, you know. Because you read Ezekiel or Jeremiah, I mean, they just kept on saying, you know, even when people didn't want to hear it. So the Lord can generally do that. But the Bible also, he can do that occasionally. But in general, we don't uh, cast our pearls before swine. We honor people's rights. God honors people's free will to listen to him or not. But they will bear the consequences of that. So if God honors that and respects their, their freedom to listen or not listen, then I... I'm going to respect it as well. But they can't silence our lives. They cannot silence this kind of life. A godly life never stops communicating. A godly life preaches every moment of the day. And typically, once it becomes known that we are Christians, people come to watch our lives pretty carefully. 
I know I did before I started walking with the Lord. I had been exposed to Christianity in my youth. And where I was spiritually, I don't know, but I know I wasn't where I, in my late teens and early 20s before I settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in my life. I knew enough to knew, know what a real Christian was and what a poser was. So somebody would say, I'm a Christian in this, and I knew what to watch for, and I would watch their life to see what kind of a Christian that they were. And I don't think I'm alone. And even people that don't come from any kind of a Christian background, once they know we're a Christian, they're watching us. And some of us are watching for hypocrisy. They want to see hypocrisy. They want to reject Christ as a result of the hypocrisy that they see in our lives. But there's another whole group of people that watch our lives in the hope of seeing a daily life that looks like Christ and gives them hope that there's a different kind of life for them to live uh, as as well. Well, whatever the motive is, that's not our problem. We just need to make sure they're seeing real Christianity through our lives. And as Christians, we live in a fishbowl. People do watch our, watch our lives. Sometimes people bristle. I just hate being in a fishbowl as a Christian. Everywhere I am, I have to be conscious of I just I can't yell at anyone. The horn on my car was my best friend before I became a Christian. And now I've got all these stickers all over my car and I can't. So sometimes people bristle against it. But I tell you this living in a fishbowl, it's a glorious thing when we have a concern for the lost. And it's a fishbowl life by design. God wants them to watch our lives and then to use our life of good works to bring him to himself. And for most people, at least initially, as the Bible teaches in its own way, our lives are the only Bible that they are going to read. Now, finally, in verse 12, Peter reminds us that the greater goal in doing all of this, yes, we have a concern for our own reputation. Yes, we certainly have a a concern for the reputation of Christ and of the body of Christ as a whole. But the big, 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 super big thing in all of this isn't my reputation. It isn't my feelings. It isn't whether people slander me or they don't slander me as a Christian. The greater goal behind the godly life and a life of good works It's not merely to silence the slanders, but that they might become Christians and saved themselves as well. You notice he puts it this way, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. That is, that as a result of our godly life and our good works, that they will ultimately become Christians themselves and that they'll be found among the ranks of the saved when we all stand before God one day. That's the heart and that's the desire of Jesus toward the lost. Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. And so Peter teaches us a great, great single great point. That is the best way to silence slander is through a godly life and good works. And that is a good thing to know as a Christian in this world.
If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's important for you to realize. And, and, and I like to tell people this every so often. So often people get turned away from Christ and from Christianity by the hypocrisy of those that claim to be Christian. And whether they are or not, I don't know. But through the years I've heard so many stories. Uh, It's a marvel that some young people that were raised in so-called Christian homes will even walk into a church based upon the hypocrisy of the parents in that home. I'm not talking about being perfect. Nobody's perfect. But just the open hypocrisy of the parents. One thing at church and then something entirely different at home. And sometimes it's just the workplace or where you run into a Christian and it can, they, they can be so obnoxious and so appalling, not even on a spiritual level, but just on a, a personal level. You just think, I don't want to be around another Christian or meet one for the rest of my life. And again, it just takes one to do so much damage. Here's what you need to understand. You accept and you reject Christ. You need to accept and reject Christianity on the basis of Christ, on the basis, basis of Jesus alone. One of the, the phrases that is uh, going to be sung to Jesus in that heavenly scene, as is recorded in the book of Revelation, is we're going to declare him to be the singular, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the faithful and true witness of God the Father. He's the faithful and true witness of Christianity. And so if you want to know what a Christian really is supposed to be like, what Christianity really is, what God will really make you into, then you have to look at Christ. And there you have a life (laughs) that was both godly and full of good works. So it's his life that removes any excuse for rejecting Christianity on the basis of some failure on our part to properly represent him. Jesus loves you. He loves your soul. He wants to save you and forgive you this morning. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. I have a badge on this is prayer. So you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. And the reason it can begin this morning, and you don't have to climb on your hands and knees to the top of the Himalayas in order to earn something or prove to God that you're serious. The reason that you can walk away having in your possession the salvation is because God has made it a free gift. Jesus has done all of the work, all of the heavy lifting in this in order to make salvation and forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, a relationship with God, something that you can freely receive this morning. And he longs for you to do it. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you so much for this very, very practical 
and very, very needed instruction from your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give it an eternal place in our hearts. And, Lord, we pray that it would bring perspective to current slander and accusations and the lives of Christians that are standing before you right now in this room. And then, Lord, give it that place to bring to our remembrance in the future as we face it coming down the line. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to not only know you, but to, in our own feeble way, represent you in the glory of your truth and your life in this world. Thank you, Lord, not only that we get to live this life, but that in living this life, it's impacting others as well. We trust you to make that impact powerful through our lives, in our homes, in the cities that we live in, in our neighborhoods, in our family, in our schools, in our workplace, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Currently.